but tonight, Zephaniah's message of death and destruction turns to rejoicing and singing and joy. Um, I assume that most of us have heard the illustration of salvation like this celestial courtroom scene, right? And, and we are the criminal defendants. Uh, we are murderers and criminals, thieves or blasphemers. And you are standing there before a holy judge, a righteous judge. And you obviously deserve to be thrown into hell for your crimes. But this substitute appears, Jesus, the Son of God. And he offers to be punished in our place. He offers to give us his righteousness so that the judge can declare us innocent of all our crimes. And and we're declared righteous for all of our sins and we're free to go. And we often call this the, the good news of the gospel, our justification. We, by the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, have been declared righteous by God. We have been rescued from judgment. We've escaped God's wrath. And that is very good news, especially in light of what we've seen in Zephaniah chapters 1 and 2, is the wrath of God is intolerable. Right? So we've been saved and we ought to praise him. However, in this illustration, Zephaniah chapter 3 is here to tell us that, that justification, that picture of salvation in that way, is, is actually just a small portion of Yahweh's salvation. Our justification is, of course, very good news, but it's, it's just part of the very best news. And let me tell you why. Because the judge, like any judge, could declare you righteous and let you go and still have nothing to do with you, still not want to see you ever again. Right? A judge could declare you innocent, could declare you free from condemnation, and still not want to spend time with you. Zephaniah tells us that the good news of Yahweh's salvation is not just being spared from his wrath. It is being preserved for his love. Yahweh's salvation, Yahweh's gospel, is that this perfect and wonderful judge declares us righteous so that he can come down from his bench and take us home so that he can adopt us into his family, so that he can give us the same inheritance as his eternal son, so that he can celebrate us and sing over us and enjoy us for all eternity. That is the good news of Zephaniah chapter 3. Before we jump in, just a quick review for some of you who maybe missed or just need a a crash course uh, in Memory for what we saw the first two chapters of Zephaniah. Zephaniah divides up in these three chapters. Chapter one, Yahweh judges his people. Chapter two, Yahweh judges the nations. And now here in chapter three, Yahweh purifies his remnant. In chapter one, we saw that God's going to pour out his wrath upon the entire world, Judah included. And there was both near and far judgment. There was a, a close judgment. Uh, It was the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then there was also far judgment, wrath in the future, which we call the Great Tribulation. Yahweh warned us that his vengeance and hell are coming for every sinner. No one will escape, which is why he calls us to flee to him, to flee to Yahweh and be saved. 
And our main takeaway from chapter 1 was that fear of Yahweh's wrath makes us worship him even more because it helps us appreciate what he's spared us from. When we understand that Christ bore so much wrath on our behalf, it causes us to grow in our appreciation. Then in chapter 2, we saw that Yahweh takes vengeance against the nations, including unbelieving Jerusalem in the first few verses of chapter 3. God is especially infuriated by those who confess him with their mouth and yet deny him with their deeds. But there is hope because a believing remnant will be spared, both Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, God is exacting his vengeance upon the nations precisely for the benefit of his remnant. And our main takeaway from chapter 2 was that the remnant can rest. The remnant can wait patiently knowing that Yahweh will work his justice upon this world. Rights will be wrong. There's no reason for us to take vengeance because vengeance belongs to Yahweh and he will avenge much better than we could ever do. But after reading through those first couple of chapters and getting to Zephaniah 3.8, we're left with a couple of questions. Last time we, we ended with two questions. One is, How could Yahweh spare us if we're sinners just like the rest of the world? And second, why would Yahweh save us if we're neither worthy nor lovely? And so tonight we're going to see Zephaniah's answers to these two questions that motivate us to repentant worship. First, he'll explain how Yahweh can spare us. And then secondly, why Yahweh would save us. Let's just ask the Lord for help before we continue. Father, once again, we come to your word and we're in desperate need. Not only that you would forgive us and cleanse us, but that your spirit would illuminate our minds, help us to understand your word, that he would give us the capacity and the strength to obey it. Father, speak to us through your word tonight and change us. Help us to worship you. For Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen. So the first question uh, that Zephaniah 3, 9 through 13 asks is, how can Yahweh spare us? Right? If everyone is a sinner on the planet, how can some be spared? I mean, if a judge lets the guilty go free, that would make him partial and wicked, right? Well, verse 9 says, for then I will change them to peoples with purified lips. And there's this, this shift to this I will phrase. It's, it's a phrase that we saw in chapter 1 12 times when Yahweh was judging his people. That there's going to be this personal wrath that, that God is going to execute against his people. In chapter 2, when God was speaking to the judgment of the nations, it only occurs one time. And now here in chapter 3, in this section, 11 times, I will, I will, I will. And what's interesting is that in this case, in verse 9, Yahweh is speaking about the nations, the peoples. But he speaks about them personally because he knows them and he cares for these worshipers among the nations just like he cares for the Israelites. And he says, I will change them. This is the promise of regeneration, the promise of internal change. You say, Josiah, but it just says he's going to give them purified lips. Well, (laughs) but if he's going to change their speech, 
He needs to change their heart to reflect that, right? You can't have perfect speech unless you have a perfect heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says that if someone doesn't sin with their tongue, he's a perfect man. Right? If you have a perfect tongue, you must have a perfect heart. So God is promising that there's going to be peoples around the world who are going to be born again. He's going to take out their hearts of stone, Ezekiel 36, and write his law on their hearts, Jeremiah 31. And this is how Yahweh can spare them because he's going to purify them and forgive them of their sins. In order that, continuing on with chapter 9, forgive me, verse 9 of chapter 3, it says that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh. So notice the order here. First it says, I will change them, and then they will call on the name of Yahweh. He changes them, then they're converted. Uh, These two events happen at the same instant, at the same moment, but it's first regeneration, the change, and then the conversion, the calling on his name. The blind sees, why? Because he was given eyes to see. So this shows us that salvation has and always will be a work of Yahweh. He always initiates. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with this phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, it's essentially the Old Testament version of repent and believe. Uh, It's to trust in Yahweh, to call out his name for help. So first we see the internal change, the regeneration. Then we see the conversion through calling on his name. And and what follows that? Well, the fruit of repentance. Notice the end of verse 9. To serve him shoulder to shoulder. After calling on Yahweh's name, the people serve him. Literally serving with one shoulder together in harmony. And it's interesting as I was studying this verse, it's it's essentially like the Old Testament version of Ephesians 2, 5 through 10 that most of us have memorized, where Paul says, right, that God makes us alive, and Zephaniah is saying he's going to change them. And then Paul says we're saved by faith, not through works, and Zephaniah says it's just by calling on Yahweh's name, not by obedience to the law. And then Paul says that then we walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should do them, and Zephaniah says that they're going to serve him with one shoulder. The Bible is so amazingly consistent in what it says. Uh, It's obviously because it has one perfect author, but it is uh, really remarkable. Now, who is this promise for? I've made reference to the peoples already there in verse 9. Where are they from? Notice verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered ones will bring my offering. He says that he's going to have worshipers coming all the way south of the rivers of Ethiopia. That is to say, beyond the end of the Nile tributaries, which is just another way of saying like to the end of the world, right? It's my worshipers will come to me from the ends of the earth. And, and we've been introduced to them briefly in chapter 2 in verse 11. Remember that Yahweh is going to starve all the gods of the earth and that all of the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. Jesus says many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom to the exclusion of unbelieving Jews. So essentially we have here Gentile believers arriving to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. What's fascinating, it says there 
that these peoples will bring my offerings. So what or who are Yahweh's offerings? Now, some just see the Gentiles here, that my worshipers are my scattered ones. And that's certainly possible, but comparing it with with other Old Testament prophecies that are parallel, uh, I think that my worshipers are not my scattered ones. My worshipers are the Gentile believers, and my scattered ones refers to the Israelites in the diaspora. It literally says that they're the daughter of his scattered ones. The Gentiles are not generally referred to with that word daughter. And notice they're not bringing their offerings. They're bringing Yahweh's offerings. So this would mean that Gentile worshipers are going to bring Yahweh's scattered ones. That's Jews in the diaspora as an offering to Yahweh in Jerusalem. And again, that's very consistent with Old Testament prophecy. If you jump over to Isaiah chapter 66, very quickly. In Isaiah chapter 66, the very end of the book, he's talking about all nations and tongues. And in verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 66, it says, Then they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as a grain offering to Yahweh, on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says Yahweh. Back to Zephaniah 3. That the point is that no matter how you, you slice this, now we have both Jew and Gentile in Jerusalem worshiping, worshiping Yahweh together. Verse 11, Zephaniah 3.11 says, In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have transgressed against me. And again, this is, this is remarkable because he's talking to Israel, the nation without shame. Zephaniah 2.1 speaks of Israel as the nation without shame. They were the nation that, that were sinners, that were rebellious and stiff-necked and should have felt shame for all their sin, but they didn't. And now, because of God's work, they have nothing to be ashamed of. Their sin has been cleansed. They've been washed. Right? Yahweh says in Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Now, Zephaniah is looking just to the results of salvation. He doesn't speak of the means of salvation. But Isaiah 53 has already been written at this point, so they should have known the answer, that the way in which God was going to cleanse them and take away their shame was that Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But again, Zephaniah speaks only to the results of this salvation, speaking to the fact that the cross is going to cleanse God's people so completely that he not only forgives and cleanses sin, he also removes the shame and the stain of that sin. It's all gone. And he invites us to live in the joy and the peace and freedom of that forgiveness. Similar to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. You remember a passage where, where Paul says that Christ is going to present us to his Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I mean, can you, can you imagine that? That Lord Yahweh is going to look you up and down, head to toe, and find nothing to reproach. You will have nothing to hide. You will have nothing to be ashamed of. 
That is how much Christ will purify his people. So sanctified. And this applies to, to all God's people in the kingdom. Notice verse 11. I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Now, this might be an appropriate time to to make a, a quick theological aside here and ask, when are these prophecies going to be fulfilled? The beginning of verse 11 said, in that day. So when is that day? Well, I don't want to get too bogged down with a lot of theological details here. But remember when the Old Testament prophets are speaking to the future and they're prophesying. They're speaking to anything that's future to them. In one passage, they could be talking about the first coming of Christ and Pentecost and the second coming of Christ and the kingdom and the eternal state all essentially in the same paragraph. Because that's all last day to them. Now, Zephaniah is prophesying prophesying about a day that's after the Great Tribulation. We saw that in Zephaniah 3.8, that he's going to burn everything down in the Great Tribulation. And then Yahweh is going to change. Then he's going to come back. So you say, Josiah, I'm confused. Well, I was too at first. That's okay. But it's like, okay, so we've already experienced this change. We've already experienced the new birth. And yet he's talking about this change as a future event after the Great Tribulation. So what's going on? Well, after Christ establishes the new covenant, Gentile believers were made Abraham's heirs. We see that in Galatians 3, 9. And what Paul explains to us is the purpose of that. And he explains this in Romans chapter 11, where he explains that that we Gentiles... We receive regeneration as a sort of first fruits of the regeneration of all things. We, we get a sort of sneak peek to some of the benefits of the new covenant, namely conversion, the new birth, in order to provoke Israel to jealousy so that they too will believe in Christ and be saved. In fact, Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. So we have not replaced Israel. We've not stolen her promises. But we do get to taste the new birth early. But this day is coming. This day that Zephaniah describes uh, where God is going to save Israel. God is going to save. And one of the wonderful things is that now that we are in Christ, we also will be privileged to enjoy these future salvation promises together with Israel. We in one united body serving Christ with one shoulder, right? Zephaniah himself has told us on multiple occasions now that we Gentiles are here in Jerusalem. We've been invited to the table. We're at this celebration. Now, continuing on in verse 12, Zephaniah adds, but I will cause to remain in your midst the lowly and poor people, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. Right? In contrast to the proud sinners Now we have the poor and the lowly inheriting the land. This is, again, consistent with all scripture. It's the poor in spirit that enter the kingdom. Those who know that they need God's forgiveness. Those that know that they have no righteousness, no business being in this kingdom. No right. Those who understand it's all by grace. And Zephaniah says, these lowly and poor people, they will find refuge. They will find Yahweh's righteousness in his son. 
Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no injustice and not speak falsehood, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. If you remember in verse 3 of Zephaniah 3, unbelieving Judah was like a lion, like a wolf that devoured everything and left nothing till morning. And now the remnant is described in the exact opposite way, as an innocent lamb lying down because there are no more threats. There's perfect safety. But the lines that are so amazing there is that now with purified lips, this remnant will never sin with their lips. They'll speak no falsehood. There will be no deceitful tongue. It says the remnant will do no injustice. And that's, again, especially amazing in light of the fact that in verse 5, Zephaniah 3, 5, it says that Yahweh is the one who is righteous and will do no injustice. And now Zephaniah takes this line which describes the holiness of Yahweh and he applies it to Yahweh's remnant because they're not like him. They will no longer sin. So again, we're talking about total sanctification, total transformation. The people of God have become like God. In New Testament language, this is 1 John 3, 2, that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now I ask once again, when will this be fulfilled? Well, once again, it's a, it's a bit complicated understanding an Old Testament prophet. But Part of the issue is that Zephaniah, right, he doesn't distinguish between all these future events. He doesn't distinguish between, for example, the millennial reign and the eternal state like John does in the book of Revelation. For Zephaniah, Jesus just comes back and reigns forever. And I think for many of these prophecies, though there could be a partial fulfillment in the millennium, I can't see how these phrases can be understood literally unless they're in eternity. Right? When it says that they will do no injustice, that they will speak no more falsehood. Well, certainly in Jesus' millennial kingdom, right, the, the, the millennial government's not going to face the sort of corruption you see today in governments. But at the same time, again, if we take the phrases literally, that there's no more injustice. Or back in verse 11, you will never again be haughty. You will never again be proud in my holy mountain. And I think we've extended all the way out into the eternal state in the new Jerusalem at this point. And again, the main point is obvious either way. Someday, very soon, we will worship God perfectly with purified lips. And that ought to be a strong motivation for us today to worship Yahweh in this way, to abandon our sin. Right? Paul tells us in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ and your life is up there with Christ in the heavenlies, then why do you continue to act like the people here on earth? Act like the people who, who have the same citizenship as you. Right? We need to live like this now, speaking no falsehood, doing no injustice. This, this future reward that all the stain of our sin will, will be removed, that should drive us towards obedience today. Yahweh will purify his remnant. We ought to walk right in the light of that hope. So Zephaniah has answered the, the how for us, right? How can a judge pardon the guilty? Well, because first he's going to make the guilty righteous in Christ. But now the second question is why? Why would Yahweh do this? Why would he save us? Notice verse 14. 
Sing for joy, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O Israel. Be glad and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. (laughs) I love the, the celebration you see in this worship. It's like when the Israelites cross the Red Sea and they're dancing and they're jumping up and down in tambourines because they've been saved. Or David, when he brings the ark to Jerusalem, it's this exuberant worship. And Zephaniah is like this this herald. Uh, One commentator says, The command to rejoice was used by town heralds calling a city to rejoice when their victorious king had returned from battle. Zephaniah is like, Jesus is back. I mean, this has to be the greatest celebration in the history of the world. Jesus has come for us. Jesus in the flesh Sin has been removed. Sing, shout, be glad. There can be no sorrow. Yahweh has vanquished all his enemies. He has returned victorious. Verse 15, Yahweh has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. So first he's taken away our sin, our condemnation. Second, he's taken away, he's judged all enemies. He says, the king of Israel, Yahweh is in your midst. You will fear evil no more. (laughs) Who who could make us fear when Yahweh is here with us? Well, what does this mean that, that Yahweh is in our midst? Well, remember that Yahweh is the name of our triune God, right? So the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, the Spirit is Yahweh. But when Yahweh makes his tabernacle among men, When Yahweh dwells physically with men, then we're talking about the eternal Son of God, King Jesus, the true heir to David's throne. Also notice when when Zephaniah speaks of this king, he's speaking to Judah after the ten tribes of the north have already been taken away, and yet he still calls Jesus the king of what? The king of Israel, all Israel, because the people of God are, are united. Another interesting thing is he says, king, the king of Israel is in your midst. He doesn't really speak of how he's going to get there. He just presents Jesus as if he's already there. And so the commentators kind of debate this a little bit. How does Jesus get back to Jerusalem? Is it a subtle transition? Is it like some claim that this is a spiritual reign? Maybe he's just reigning in our hearts. Well, let me say this. Christ's first entrance into the world was subtle, right? In his incarnation, he made his tabernacle among men, John 1, 14, without a big entrance. And frankly, his ascension was without a lot of fanfare either. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is standing with his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he simply ascends up into heaven. And the crowd is just like standing there watching him. And the angels have to say, look, I mean, the next time he's coming back, it's going to be the same. Implied... Right back here at the Mount of Olives. And I say that because Zechariah 14.4 says that when Jesus comes back and his feet hit the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in two and he's going to slay all of his enemies with the sword of his mouth. It says in Zechariah 14.9, Yahweh then will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name one. So no, it will not be subtle (laughs) when Jesus gets back to Jerusalem. It'll be anything but subtle. Back to Zephaniah 3, 16, it says, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, 
Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. No reason to fear. You're safe in Jesus. Don't let your hands fall limp. What is that talking about? Uh, Another commentator states, In Hebrew thought, the hand symbolizes strength or power. And letting the hands hang limp referred to a feeling of weakness or powerlessness, a sense of discouragement. In fact, Moses prophesied about Yahweh's coming salvation, saying that God would save Israel precisely when their hands had fallen limp and they had no more strength. Deuteronomy 32, 36. It's an expression we see throughout Scripture. Hebrews 12, 12 says, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. It's like, come on, let's go. Jesus is here. You can't be sad anymore. Rejoice. The bridegroom has arrived. Yahweh has saved. No more discouragement. It's time for rejoicing. It's time for joy. And the most incomprehensible thing, not just our joy. It's a day of Yahweh's joy, a day of Yahweh's celebration. Notice verse 17. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. (laughs) I mean, this is. This is incomprehensible. I mean, Yahweh is in our midst. He's called a a mighty one, a mighty warrior who will save. Uh, This is our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, back on earth at last. Remember Isaiah 9, 6 calls the Messiah wonderful counselor, mighty God. That's this word here. And so impossible to understand. He is filled with joy and gladness over us. His love for us overflows with song. It's like we can understand, I think, when we read verse 14 and we see that we're singing to him and we should be rejoicing in him because he's worthy. He's worthy to receive praise. He's worthy to receive all glory. But now it says he's rejoicing over us? That he will be quiet in his love for us? One commentator states, To consider Almighty God sinking in contemplations of love over a once wretched human being can hardly be absorbed by the human mind. But that's exactly what what God is saying. That Jesus is singing, He's so in love with His bride. I mean, you kind of just have to let that sink in a little bit. Jesus is singing. This isn't a a unique thing to Zephaniah either. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9, Yahweh will rejoice over you. Isaiah 62, 4, you will be called, my delight is in her. God, who is love, is delighting in his people. And this is a a great and, and wonderful mystery. Now, I want to address quickly one thing that a lot of commentators want to sort of minimize this verse because they think that it's beneath God to speak of him in terms of this passionate love. They, they remind us correctly that God has no human passions. God is, right, God is impassable, which means that God's love described here is anthropopathic. That's just a big word that means that God is describing himself in human terms. 
right? God is not a human. God does not have human emotions. He doesn't ebb and flow. He doesn't change moods. He's immutable. He's unchanging. But obviously that's impossible for us to understand. I mean, if, if God were to try to describe himself to us, what it's like to be an omnipresent eternal spirit, it would mean absolutely nothing to us which is why he very often describes himself in human terms. He speaks of his hands and his eyes and his heart. And we know that God is spirit. He doesn't have hands. But here's the important thing to understand. When we read these human descriptions, we cannot just discard them or minimize them. For example, when you read in the book of Hebrews that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, You should not think, oh, well, then I got nothing to worry about because God doesn't have hands, right? That would be the wrong response to that, right? Because, right, even though God doesn't have hands, that verse describes a real divine truth in human terms. And in the same way, when God speaks of his love and his joy, those words reveal real divine truth to us, Uh, theological term for that sometimes is like divine affections. In reality, I mean, this is a mystery to us. We're not God. God is holy. We know they're not human emotions, but they are the best way for God to communicate to us how he's going to celebrate us when we're perfected. And furthermore, perhaps most importantly, let us not forget how Yahweh is in our midst at this point. Because it's through the ultimate anthropomorphism. It's through the incarnate Christ. He is the one that is in our midst at this point, right? We're talking about King Jesus and he is human and he has human emotions. One person with two natures, divine and human. So I ask you, is there anything more incomprehensible than that? To imagine Christ, the lamb who is worthy of our worship, singing over us and rejoicing over us like this. Joyful singing. You know, we often uh, think about what it's like, what it's going to be for us to, to sing in heaven, right? What's it going to be like when, when, when we're perfect, when we're sinless, and we can sing perfectly to God? This morning, maybe heard someone, maybe someone in my family, say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sing like Jubilant Sykes. (laughs) Imagine how great that will be when we all sing like that. Now imagine what it'll be like to hear Yahweh sing, sing a love song over you, to hear Jesus joyfully sing a love song to his bride. Jesus, the revelation of the glory of God singing over us. That'll be the moment that Jesus' prayer in John 17, 23 is fulfilled. Turn quickly, John chapter 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. He's praying for us. He's praying for our unity, for our salvation, that we may be one with him. says John 17, 23, I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. And then notice this phrase and loved them even as you have loved me. 
there's going to be this moment when we know that Jesus loves us even as God the Father loves him. I mean, can you, can you fathom that? Just think, just imagine the perfect, passionate, eternal, unbreakable love of the Father toward his beloved Son. He delights in everything about his Son. He loves every quality about his Son. The Father is enraptured with every aspect of his beloved Son. Imagine that eternal love. Because Jesus says, that's how you are loved, by him. If you are in Christ, that is how you are loved, by him. And that, in a sense, is is what makes Zephaniah 3.17 make sense, right? When we ask ourselves, why would God love me like that? Why would God sing over me like that? I'm filthy. I'm unworthy. Yes. But when God's work of salvation is complete, when he has finished his work of sanctification, who will we be like? We will be transformed perfectly into the image of Jesus. 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him. We will share the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4, holy and blameless and beautiful. Yahweh will love his people precisely because all of Christ's perfections will be seen in us. All of his communicable attributes. Obviously, we don't become little gods when Yahweh changes us. Sorry if that was a a disappointment to you. You're not going to become omnipresent, right? But we are going to share all of God's character, all his justice, all of his mercy, all of his love, all of his grace. And he will delight in us because we will be perfect, a perfect reflection of his Son. Which reminds us that ultimately this is not about us, right? We're just a love gift of the Father to his Son. And this is not about our loveliness. This is about Jesus. Yahweh will delight in us because we will glorify the beauty of his Son, Jesus Christ. It's all for his glory. Verse 18. I will assemble those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They were from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Some difficult Hebrew here, but I think the idea is that true Israel is seen scattered abroad, mourning, grieving, that they can't celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. They're grieving this long distance from Zion. They're grieving their exile. I was thinking as as Jubilant actually sang this morning that the author could have been thinking of, of this passage, right? Just mourning that I'm a long, long way from home. And the remnant longs to be home, to be with Yahweh. And that is precisely what Yahweh promises to do, to bring us all home. Notice verse 19. Behold, I'm going to deal in that time with all those who afflicted you. All of Israel's enemies will be punished. Isaiah 60 says, the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing down to you. And all those who spurned you will bow themselves to the soles of your feet They will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Verse 19 continues, Zephaniah 3, 19. And I will save the lame and gather the banished, and I will turn them in their shame into praise and a name in all the earth. You see all the reversals here, right? So many contrasts between chapter 1 and 3. Yahweh's wrath reaches all the earth in chapter 1. Now Yahweh's remnant has a name in all the earth. And then so tender, he says, the lame will be saved and gathered in. Hear this, 
There is no disability that will prevent a child of Yahweh from returning home. The lame will not be left abandoned. They will not be left in a distant land. No prisoner, no banished person will be left behind. Not one member of Yahweh's remnant is beyond his reach. Just like no sinner is beyond God's wrath in chapter 1, no child of Yahweh is beyond his salvation in chapter 3. No exceptions. Yahweh is bringing all his children home. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Verse 20, at this time... I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you to be a name and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, this will happen. Israel returns to her land. Israel gets a name and praise. On this future day, Israel will have a good name and reputation amongst all the peoples of the earth. Why? Because God's killed off anyone who doesn't worship him. The only one left in the nations are those of us who worship Yahweh. Not only that, Israel's fortunes are restored. We're not just talking about captivity returned here. All the Abrahamic promises restored. Just like there was global destruction in chapter 1, now we have global restoration. The regeneration of all things. And just like the destruction of Jerusalem could not be the full fulfillment of the great and terrible day of Yahweh in chapter 1, when all the inheritance of the earth perished, the return of the exiles under Cyrus's decree, while it did foreshadow some of Zephaniah's promises, does not come close to fulfilling the full sense of these prophecies. Yahweh has to dwell in Jerusalem. Israel's fortunes need to be restored. And I have not yet heard Jesus' song, and neither have you. This day is coming, though, and it will be glorious. Can we say amen to that? This day is coming. Can we say, come, Lord Jesus? Maranatha. So we've seen Zephaniah's answers. How can Yahweh spare us? Well, he's going to change us and forgive us and wash us. And why will he save us? So that he can delight in the image of his son, he puts in us. Well, how can we <laughs> try to wrap up uh, this book in a couple of minutes here? W- what is the point of Zephaniah? I think it's repentant worship. Zephaniah is commanding the people of God to repentant worship. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that Yahweh's wrath is meant to motivate God's people to repentant worship, to abandon the sin that God hates and to worship him. In chapter 3, The same message. It's Yahweh's joy. It's also meant to motivate us toward repentant worship. Right? It's the the message of of chapters one and two is to the same people that chapter three is written to. Sinners who need to repent. When we think about Yahweh's joy in this great future day, how can I sin when I know the joy that my sinlessness will bring to Yahweh? How much he delights in perfection. How can I put my treasure in this world when I see the incredible reward that he has preserved for me in the next? God is a rewarder of those who seek him. You do not want to miss this celebration. You do want to miss his wrath. You do not want to miss this celebration. We need to use all of this to fuel our worship, wrath and joy, past salvation and future hope. You know, some would encourage us to fight for holiness 
by remembering what Christ did on the cross, remembering that our past sins have been forgiven. Peter does this in 2 Peter 1, saying that the, the person who does not walk in holiness has forgotten that his past sins have been forgiven. Others encourage us to fight for holiness by looking forward to our future hope. Author of Hebrews does this, right? Reminding us that Moses forsook Egypt by looking forward to the reward. Some say, look to God's wrath and you'll flee sin. Others say, look to God's hope. The hope of God's love as motivation to obey him. And I think Zephaniah is telling us, use it all. Use it all to fuel your worship. I would say to you, when you look to the cross, I'd see what Christ has done, taking the wrath that we deserve. But also look to Christ's present ministry, interceding on our behalf. And look to Christ's love song in the future. Look to that moment when Christ will delight in you. Look to God's wrath and hate your sin more. Look to God's love and pursue what he loves. Worship God for all he is and all he does. That is the definition of worship in Psalm 150. To praise him for all he does and to praise him for all he is. Waiting that day where by his grace he will sing over us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we long for this day when we will be like Jesus and we will see Jesus. And we pray that it would come soon. And we pray that you would grant repentance and faith to anyone who does not have this living hope in them. For Christ's glory we ask. Amen.